listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. I want to talk about your slate. I want to talk about your clean slate. You can have one. You might not have one, but by the time we're done today, you can have one. You can have a clean slate. You can know that you have a clean slate. And where are we going to go to find out about your slate, how clean it is, and what you need to do to have a clean slate? We're going to look at our Father's Word, Luke chapter 7. Turn with me. You might have a smartphone. You might have a tablet with you. If you have the God Factor app, which is free, you can use that and follow along. In the Bible tab, if you're not able to get access right away, just wait about 10, 15 seconds and try again. We're trying to accommodate your ability to use the technology as more and more people are. In our Father's Word, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. We're finishing the seventh chapter of Luke today. I can't even believe it. We've been here now, what, 10 months? I've been here for 10 months, and we're in the seventh chapter of Luke. Does anybody have a hard time with gradually, patiently going through the Word of God? Anybody have a hard time with that? I didn't think so. There's more stuff in this book than we could ever imagine, and we don't have enough lifetimes to go through and exhaust all the things that are in this marvelous, marvelous book above books. In Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, one of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him, behind Jesus, at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair on her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you, and he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Classic case of an identity crisis, and only one person really gets it. The people who should have understood it don't get it. Only one person in this whole scenario understands truly the identity of Jesus. Who is this who even forgives sins exactly? Thank you very much. There are people who think that Jesus was a good moral teacher, a good man, nothing more than a prophet. 
But he certainly can't be God in the flesh, certainly can't be God's anointed one, certainly too exclusive to say that you can only get into heaven through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't want to go too far. Certain people would say Jesus was just a good man. Well, listen, a good man by definition can't be a lying man. Liars aren't good. A good man by definition, as good as they are, does not have the ability to forgive sins that people recognize very clearly, instantaneously, who is this guy who says, your sins are forgiven? No one can forgive sins except God alone. It's not possible to come to the conclusion that Jesus is a good man if Jesus were lying. Jesus would have had a moral obligation as a good man, if that's all he was, to correct the people. Jesus would have had a moral obligation if he was a good man, a good person, to not go where people can't go and to say, your sins are forgiven. Who are you, Jesus, to say your sins are forgiven? I'll tell you who Jesus is. It's who the Bible says he is. He's the one who can give you a clean slate. Only Jesus can give you a clean slate. Only Jesus could say what he said and be completely 100% right about it. Jesus was not merely a good teacher. He was God in the flesh because only God can forgive sins. Jesus would have had a moral obligation if he was just a good teacher to have immediately caught himself when he said, your sins are forgiven. Oops, I made a mistake. I went too far. I shouldn't be saying that. But he doesn't do that. In fact, we get the impression that Jesus is rolling up his sleeves, getting ready when he says to Simon, Simon, I'd like to say something to you. Simon says, yes, teacher, what is it? And then Jesus launches into this scenario about one particular person who owed about 500 days wages, 500 denarii, and another particular person who owed about 50 denarii, 50 days wages. And since neither one of them could pay the debt because that's a big debt to pay, more than a month's salary, almost two months' salary for the lesser, and almost a year and a half, two years for the other person, pretty significant. I wouldn't want to be in either situation. Neither of them could pay the debt. What does Jesus say? He forgave both of them. Now, which one do you think would be happier? Which one do you think would love the one who forgave them more? And the Pharisee, who didn't quite understand the identity of Jesus when he says, if this man were a prophet, has to gulp and swallow his pride and say, well, I guess the obvious answer, the one who's forgiven much. Jesus says, you got it. You need somebody to give you a clean slate. You say, well, I don't have much of a past. Listen, everybody's got a past. Some of us just have more of a past, but everybody's got a past. Your past might be five minutes long. Might be 15 minutes on your way here coming to church. Irony of ironies, you get into an argument with somebody. Your past might be from 50 years ago or longer. Not a person alive who doesn't have a past. This book, the Bible, is a book of contrasts, continually presenting to us black and white scenarios. There is very little gray in the Bible. Black and white, 
contrast between people and this particular scenario has two players, the Pharisee, the man who had the knowledge of the scriptures, the man who had the upright, outward reputation among the people, the man who would wear clothing that would make him distinct among all the people. People would be able to look at a Pharisee, see them coming from long distance away. That was a Pharisee. You could tell by their clothing. Didn't have to say a word. You could tell by the flowing robes and the outward garments and the prayer box, the scripture box on the forehead, the phylactery and around the right hand, the box containing the scriptures, the Old Testament scripture. There was an outward appearance about a Pharisee that made them unmistakable. And then the other player is this sinner, quote unquote. See, what Luke is doing is helping us to understand how the woman was perceived. The fact of the matter is that all of us are sinners. All of us have a past, and therefore all of us need to have a clean slate. But this particular woman, it says a woman of the city, we could say she was a woman of the world, a woman with a little bit of a different education, if you know what I'm saying, and you can read between the lines. A woman who had a past. You know anybody who's got a past? You know anybody who's done something in their past that's so deep, so dark, so terrible, so disgusting, so repulsive that they just wish they could erase the hard drive of the memory bank? You know anybody who's going through things in their life right now and certain situations will remind them of their past, remind them of things that they did that they shouldn't have done, remind them of missed opportunities that they missed royally, and if only they had the wisdom then that they have now, they would have done things differently, but they didn't. You know anybody who's got a past like that? This woman was an expert. She would have had the equivalent of a PhD in mistake after mistake after mistake. See, the situation here is that Jesus is invited by the Pharisee. Who is the Pharisee? The Pharisee would be somebody who has the knowledge of the Scriptures, somebody who has an outwardly upright appearance. The equivalent today would be somebody who's president of a seminary, could be a Pharisee. Equivalent today could be somebody who's a senior pastor of a church or lead pastor of a church or an associate pastor of a church. Somebody who could be sitting on the board of a Christian organization, a ministry even, could be a Pharisee. An elder or a deacon in a church, somebody who's supposed to have knowledge of the scriptures, understanding of the scriptures, a reputation of walking with God for a number of years, Lord willing, could be a Pharisee. A Sunday school teacher, somebody in an Awana program who's leading a ministry, could be a Pharisee. Anybody who is got a reputation outwardly that's upright, known for being religious, known for doing good deeds, expected to do good deeds. Anybody who has a knowledge of the scripture could be a Pharisee. When I was a kid, I have an older brother and a younger brother. I'm a middle child that tells you a lot about me. We used to play board games, my brothers and I, and some of those board games weren't very God-honoring. One of them in particular was an occult game. I won't say the name because you might be tempted to go out and find out what it is and use it. If you play occult board games, you're stupid. Yes, I said that word in church. You're stupid. You want wisdom and insight about your future? Seek God. He'll give it to you. 
We used to play with an occult board game, and there was a character on that board game that was particularly eerie and weird. When I was young and stupid and didn't know the Lord yet, my brothers didn't either. When it was nighttime, I shared a room with my younger brother. You know what's coming here. And when we were in bed in this very small room, I would say, oh my goodness, what is that in the closet? Is that who I think it is in the closet? And I would say the name of the monster. And I would point and I would say, there he is. Don't worry, he's, just, he's looking at you, but don't worry. And I would scare the daylights out of my brother and he would go underneath the covers as if somehow covers have some intrinsic, impermeable Kevlar ability to them that make them monster proof. You know, not every monster is loud and boisterous. Beware the religious monster lurking beneath the surface. Not every monster is loud and boisterous. Some are quiet, but they are monsters nonetheless. This particular situation, Jesus is invited by a Pharisee to come to his house. Jesus makes his way there, and the situation would have been in those days... He would have reclined at the table. Notice it says reclined. He would have reclined at the table. Something like this would have been a lower table, not like the tables that we have today. And you would have basically rested your left arm on the table, freeing up your right hand and your right arm to be able to partake of the food. And you would have been far enough away from the wall, somewhat of a, the center of the room or somewhere far enough away from the wall where the servers could have come from behind you and done what? Served the meal. Put down the meal so you could enjoy it. So Jesus is there at the table, reclining at the table, as it says. This is what it means to recline, to be on the ground, as I'm describing, eating the meal with his feet somewhat behind them. The shoes would have been off the feet. The sandals would have been off the feet. And the tradition, the practice, obviously, because you're having a meal and you're sitting next to other people, side next to other people, you probably would have liked to have clean feet. At least your neighbor would have liked for you to have had clean feet. And we get this understanding from Jesus in John chapter 13 when he washes the disciples' feet, right? He takes off his outer garment, puts it around his waist, and begins to wash the disciples' feet. It was what the servant would do. The servant would wash the feet of the other people having the meal because you didn't want dust. You didn't want toe jam. You didn't want all that gunky stuff in your neighbor's face as you're having a meal. You see, ugly feet, disgusting feet have a way of ruining your appetite. And so this is what happening. This is what's happening. Jesus is at that table reclining, and this woman comes in. Somehow, word got out about Jesus. You heal people. You cast out demons. You perform miraculous signs and wonders. You pronounce people's sins forgiven, and you guarantee that people are going to be following you because people need help. They needed it 2,000 years ago, and they need it today. You need hope. You need to know where you can turn to have hope. And that hope is not in a paycheck. That hope is not in a better job. It's not in a better car. It's not in a nicer spouse. Although your spouse is very firmly convinced that that's the case. Hope is found in a person named Jesus. And the possibility, and actually the certainty, that if you come to him, you too can have a clean slate. The certainty that you too, if you come to Jesus, you can have a clean slate. 
So this woman makes her way into this house, which was not an uncommon practice. It seems strange to us today, but not really an uncommon practice given the reputation of Jesus and given the fact that when a prominent person was coming, the poorer people, the less fortunate people could make their way to that dinner to pick up some crumbs from the table, pick up some leftovers that might be going on at this banquet. And this seems to be the scenario reminding us again that you can't make this stuff up, reminding us again that there's tremendous detail here that shows us that Luke is a very excellent historian, not to be dismissed, but to be respected. Verse 37, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, this is the reputation that she had when she learned that he was reclining a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, some have postulated that this might have been the woman's dowry, a very valuable, almost a marble-esque, a marble-like flask that often was worn around the neck or carried, given by the parents earlier on in life. So the woman to be given at a later time as a dowry to be poured out onto the feet of the bridegroom on the wedding night. How about that for honor and respect and love in the context of sex? Our, con- our understanding of sex today is all about me, myself, and I. You know, the biblical understanding of sex is that it's an overflow of love and a demonstration of love. You want your sex life to improve? Be selfless. Did you actually say that in church? Yes, I did, because that's the biblical understanding. It's not just about getting your needs met. It's about expressing love and affection in the United States of America, especially purveyors of pornography. Most of the technology that even we're enjoying today with God Factor is developed as a result of the pornography industry. We're turning it against the devil in how we're using it. How about that for a twist? for the glory of God. But some have postulated that this was part of the woman's dowry. And the problem she's got is who's she gonna give it to as a woman of the city, as a woman with a reputation. She's spent herself, probably, if you read between the lines, repeatedly. She doesn't have somebody that she can really give herself to in the way that God originally intended her to give herself. So the only person, the only thing she can do with this valuable ointment, this valuable perfume is to give it to the one whom she recognizes as worthy. And without her realizing what she's doing, she's emotionally out of control. You've seen a woman who's emotionally out of control. I've seen men who are emotionally out of control. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Some of us men, we need to be emotionally out of control when it comes to our understanding of Jesus and our understanding of our need to have a clean slate. Do you understand what God is saying to you? This woman begins to have teardrop after teardrop fall until it's properly described as weeping, verse 38. She's standing behind him at his feet. Now we have the imagery as Jesus is reclining. And the tears come so heavily, so strongly, as she's probably contemplating how filthy her slate is. The tears fall. They fall so heavily that they actually are enough to make his feet so wet that she recognizes that now there's a logistic problem she's created. She needs to wipe his feet 
And so she kneels down next to him. And she takes her hair, which is not appropriate to let your hair down unless you are already considered to be an immoral woman, perhaps even a prostitute. See, when the Bible says that Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, there was something about Jesus that didn't make tax collectors and sinners, people with a history, people with a past, afraid to approach Jesus. See, the only person who's going to keep you from Jesus is you. You can at times be your own worst enemy when it comes to experiencing intimacy with the risen Savior. There was something about Jesus that made him irresistible, made him approachable, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And this woman's weeping, falls down on his feet. She stoops over close enough to take her hair, recognizing that she's putting her hair in the most dirty part of Jesus' body here, his feet still covered. Whatever it was would cover his feet at that particular time. And then she takes the ointment out of the flask. She pours it on his feet, the perfume, which would have filled the room. And the Pharisee who has an identity crisis says, if this guy really was a prophet, he would know. And then what does Jesus do? He immediately demonstrates the ability to read minds. Who can do that? Who can forgive sins? Who can read minds? You've got to be more than just a prophet. If you're the Pharisee and you're hearing Jesus say, hey, I want to say something to you, maybe you're thinking that here it comes. Now Jesus is going to speak up about this. He's going to rebuke the woman for her impropriety. How dare her make a spectacle of herself? How dare her touch him? She's unclean. Every Pharisee knew that you don't get close to sinners. You don't touch people who've got gunk in their life. You just don't let yourself become ceremonially, ritualistically unclean. And yet Jesus doesn't seem to flinch at all. It's the Pharisee who has the identity crisis if, if he really were who people are saying he is, if he really were who he's saying he is by referring to himself as the son of man, if he was the person who had the identity and the credentials behind the claims and the statements, he wouldn't allow this to be going on. And the master communicator, Jesus, turns the tables on the Pharisee, this outwardly upright religious person, and makes a statement about this woman it's absolutely mind-blowing. Certain moneylender in verse 41 had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he called, canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. There's other instances in Scripture where Jesus has been anointed with ointment. This is not to be confused with them. This is earlier on in Jesus' ministry. But you know, there's a principle here that I have found to be true. I have found in my experience in ministry, and maybe you have too, that the Bible is true. 
it's very difficult to get religious people to love God passionately. It's very difficult to get religious people, outwardly upright people, to love people passionately. In fact, sometimes it's like pulling teeth. See, I know because I live in this body, and you live in yours. And as much as I love the Word of God, and I meditate on the Word of God, and I want you to fall in love with the Word of God, my first concern is that I fall in love with the God of His Word. My second concern is that you fall in love with the God of His Word. It's all too easy to go through the motions. The longer you've known Jesus, the more you understand the Bible, the more you've gone to church, the more years that have passed, the more difficult it is to continually recapture your love and your zeal for God. It's all too easy to fall in love with the church. All too easy to fall in love with the ministry. All too easy to fall in love with a pastor or a personality. All too easy to fall in love with a variety of things. But the Christian life is not about falling in love with a thing. It's not about falling in love with a book, even though we love this book, the Word of God, the Bible. It's about falling in love and growing in love with a person whose name is Jesus. The hardest people, the most difficult people to help fall in love with God and be on fire for God and fall in love with people and serve people with selflessness and a heart's desire and a love for them are people who are familiar with God's word, religious people. Outwardly upright people, we all, with the passage of time, listen, tend to our Pharisaic attitude. And you know what's worse? We don't even realize it. We don't even realize that this Pharisee felt like he was in a position to teach, knew a thing or two about the law, knew a thing or two about what was ceremonially and culturally acceptable, and he was as far from understanding the heartbeat of God as anybody who had that kind of an understanding of God's word could have been. How is it possible that somebody could know God's word that well, know all 614 commandments, the do's and the don'ts as a Pharisee, have whole passages of the Bible memorized the Old Testament and not understand the very heartbeat of God because the Pharisee lost track of one of the fundamental teachings of Scripture, which is all of us have a filthy slate. Every single one of us has a past. Every single one of us is in need of having a clean slate. And it's only brought about by the forgiveness of God Oh, how we need to hear God say, your sins are forgiven. Not just your past sins when you came to know Christ as your Savior for the very first time, but the sins of five minutes ago, the sins of 15 minutes ago, the sins of last year, the sin of bitterness, the sin of unforgiveness, the sin of covetousness, the sin of licentiousness, the sin of debauchery, the sin of letting your eyes look at things they shouldn't look at, the sin of letting your mind meditate on things that you shouldn't meditate on, the sin of greed, which is idolatry, the sin of looking at what your neighbor has and wishing you had what your neighbor has, the sin of, it goes on and on 
and on. Who will rescue me from this body? Who will rescue me from myself? This one who rescues the woman of the city, the quote-unquote sinner, Jesus. Jesus says in verse seven, there, 47, therefore I tell you her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Listen, if Jesus could forgive this woman with a reputation throughout the whole city as being a sinner, he can forgive you your sins. He can remove the haunting of that one sin that you might allow to be replayed in your mind and your heart over and over again. God is bigger, he's better, he's purer than anything you've ever committed. If he can forgive this woman whose sins are many, certainly he can forgive you if your sins are many or they're few. Whether you've been forgiven of a debt of 500 days wages or 50 days wages, you still need to have your debt removed and only one person can do it with authority. Only one person can do it with accuracy. Only one person can do it with integrity. And his name is Jesus. They asked the million dollar question. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Who is this who even forgives sins? He even forgives sins. He's healed people. He's cast out demons. He's done miraculous signs and wonders. I had somebody on Facebook the other day ask, does your church believe in the miraculous? Yes, we do. Beginning with the forgiveness of sin. Because that's humanly impossible. It always amazes me how people want God to do the spectacular and the signs and wonders, the miraculous, the, you know what I'm talking about. Those types of signs and wonders with people being healed, legs growing back and arms growing back and all of these types of things, you name it. But you know, we continually lose sight of the most significant, most important miracle that needs to happen and it might need to happen in your life today. Because you can't save yourself. You can't help yourself. You can't clean your own slate. You need somebody to come in and do for you what you can't do for yourself. And that is remove not some of your sin, not most of your sin, but every single last one of your sin. They asked the million dollar question, and you should too. Who is this who even forgives sins? Only one person got it, and she's the one who was forgiven. He said to the woman, your faith, notice, your faith has saved you. She had saving faith in the person of Jesus Christ. The fact of the matter is that the only thing keeping you from a clean slate is you. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.